0: Welcome to Dragonroot Radio. On today's show, Dragonroot had the chance last week to attend Fearing the Black Body, a panel discussion on gender violence and misrepresentation and resistance. The event was hosted by the center for gender advocacy the event began with robin maynard who is a black feminist who spent years documenting racist and gender-based state violence she's also spent the better part of a decade doing frontline harm reduction in montreal and is currently completing her book policing the black body state violence and black life in canada for fernwood publishing robin's past work has involved full-time street-based outreach with sex workers in Montreal nonprofit organization, Stella, doing harm reduction, rights-based education, and medical, legal, and social service accompaniments surrounding health and anti-violence. She's a harsh critic of systemic racism in all its forms, and Maynard has been involved in grassroots organizing against police violence. Most recently, Maynard recently helped co-found Montreal Noir a Black activist group committed to combating anti-Black racism in Quebec and is part of the Black Indigenous Harm Reduction Alliance. Robin began the event by giving a synopsis of anti-Black racism in Canada.
1: So I'm going to just be trying to really trace um, the creation of the representations of Blackness that were created under the practice of slavery and how those have actually followed in a fairly continuous way uh, to the present day. And let me know if I'm speaking too quickly, because I sometimes do that when I want to share a lot of information. So, um, I mean, the history of anti-blackness, we can't really speak about the history of anti-blackness in Canada without just getting a global perspective on just the global history of how anti-blackness has come to define uh, the whole world, actually. So, uh, even though I'm going to be speaking about Canada, I want to begin with just recognizing that the history of anti-blackness really begins Uh, in 1444, which is when the first enslaved African was captured on the shores of West Africa. And the the transatlantic slave trade trade that continued until the 19th century created meanings of blackness that continue, and we can really see those in the way that we treat black people of all genders to this day. Um, Toni Morrison says uh, this widely cited quote that she says slavery broke the world in half, and a lot of really what that means is looking at even uh, during that conception of when. Europeans were really starting to define what is the human being. Uh, It was really, in that same moment, creating uh, a meaning for blackness, for people with what came to be seen as African features, uh, as less than human, as subhuman, um, as pathological. And this logic was really used to uh, justify slavery, but it's something that that really still persists today. So in Canada, the history of of black people being treated uh, as criminal, as dangerous, as unwanted, can actually be traced back to then. But the first incarnation of slavery on the indigenous territories that we now call Canada begins in 1628, when the first black enslaved person, Oliver Lajunesse, uh, who was renamed of course, Oliver Lajeunesse, landed on the shores of what we now call Quebec. Um, and that is a practice that continued until uh, the British abolished the slave trade in 1834. So the practice of enslavement in Canada um, People often refer to it, you can find like different revisionist historians which will say that it was this sort of benevolent practice that black slaves weren't treated as badly as they necessarily were in other parts of the world, and um, you know there are differences in terms of the way that slavery was practiced here. It wasn't. Uh, it didn't take the form of plantation slavery like you see in the southern United States and like you see in the Caribbean, but I mean slavery itself is a form of violence, the idea that um, black and indigenous people who were also enslaved at this time Uh, We're not actually human beings, but we're property, we're chattel, um, we're a commodity. That is itself a a form of violence to actually reduce the very humanity of people. Um, But um, even if you go into different historical accounts that will talk about uh, slavery not being as a violence, there's actually really documented forms of extreme uh, violence towards spoken slave to black men and women. For example, uh, Sylvia Hamilton has documented that in the 18th century Nova Scotia, a young free woman named Lydia Jackson, uh, was captured and enslaved and sold to a master and his wife and was um, beaten and she was, she was beaten extremely violently even when she was pregnant. So this actually goes to show not only that anti-blackness justified slavery but that it actually even goes beyond that, that this sort of, like, regular, like, almost, yeah, this, this hatred, really, of uh, people with uh, what have now been seen as black bodies goes beyond even just economic logic because it's not even economic to treat what would technically be your property in this way, so it really just goes to show um, the way that black people have been constituted as not only just a commodity, but actually as just this less than human, um, that really a lot of the most pathological um, traits, I think, that we don't even associate with humans have been put onto black people at this time. So, also in the 18th century, even as slavery is being practiced, you see the beginning of Canada's self-representation as this benevolent state. Um, so it wasn't even technically Canada yet. This is a British colony at this point. But like for now, like for example, if you go to the government of Canada's website, you can see that uh, they often reference uh, this group called the Black Loyalists, who um, the British uh, sort of the, the way the story goes, the British freed um, these black people that were loyal to the crown, who were American enslaved people, and then gave them like refuge and life in Canada. But though they were enslaved black Americans. Uh, and the British did tell them they would allow them their freedom if they fought. You know, it was a strategic move, if they're, they're taking property uh, from white Americans who did um, grant them their freedom uh, in the 18th century, but at the same time, almost the exact same amount of enslaved black people were actually brought into Canada. So even as you have this liberation narrative of this freeing of the slaves who actually also have the practice of enslavement in Canada is actually growing and um, cementing at this point because those white boilers that came with their, with their, uh, with their slaves actually ended up having really prominent roles in society. So this is kind of where you see the beginning of Canada's, the Canadian tendency, I guess, to compare favorably to, to enslavement in the, in the United States and to anti-black racism in the United States and to really create this, uh, this mythos. Um, so after the abolition of slavery in 1834, the pathology that was attached to blackness Uh, Was remained, but it changed in in significant ways as well. Um, Almost immediately, the history of anti-blackness was erased by 1865. In a lot of uh, textbooks and children's schools and everything, the history of slavery was not referred to. I mean, it was already almost evacuated from history. There's no uh, reparations, obviously. Um, And then you have, uh, during the Underground Railroad, uh, when there was a lot of black enslaved people who were actually trying to come to Canada, this is like a moment that Canada often looks back to as, a one, as this history of extreme benevolence, but actually, much as there was really actually amazing work being done, particularly by black men and women in southwestern Ontario and Chatham, etc., that were forming like vigilance committees to actually stop white slavers who had crossed the border to try to, try to take black enslaved people, they formed these, like hundreds of black men and women, um, formed these resistance committees to really stop this enslavement, so there's some really cool history of resistance there, but what people actually found when they came here Um, though slavery had been abolished was, um, that was actually when formalized segregated schooling uh, was passed, for example, in Ontario in 1840 and then reformalized again in 1850, a practice that continued in Ontario for a very long time. And uh, I think the last segregated school in Nova Scotia actually closed in 1983. Um, There is also segregated schools in Alberta, so you have this discourse of receiving all these freed um, all these free black uh, enslaved people, but then you actually see what was not talked about at the same time was re-actually setting the way that black people were actually gonna be treated in Canada. So it's just white supremacy articulated in a different way uh, than in the United States, but it's not to say that this has been a land of racial justice and harmony even then. Um, regardless though, um, you know, even during segregated schooling, there's really amazing organizing work being done by black women, Uh, regarding education, opening schools, sometimes in their living rooms, um, sometimes fighting segregation, sometimes um, having really successful all-black schools, uh, so successful that white students or white parents would actually try to get their kids in. So, I mean, there's still always a really good history of of black people fighting um, fighting this as well. Um, So if you go into the 20th century, I mean, there was kind of that window where they had allowed like. black fugitive slaves to come into the country but the border started to get really tight and border violence towards black people started to be very extreme uh, once you get into the early 20th century. For example, the immigration department of Canada uh, in 1911 actually paid medical examiners uh, to go to, or they paid medical examiners, sorry, uh, a bonus for each black migrant that they turned away and at one point they actually sent black doctors to Oklahoma to tell black people that if they came to Canada, they would die. They also told black men that uh, their women and children would be stripped naked and be subjected to all kinds of um, just horrific treatment at the hands of the white border guards. So they really went trying to trying to scare people with the idea of what had actually happened under black enslavement, trying to harken back to the auction and things like this in order to actually keep um, potential black migrants out. Because, again, the reason that they did this was because Um, Officially, it would seem racist to not allow black people into the country, but it didn't seem racist to pay a significant amount of money to actually keep um, black men and women out of the country. So um, that is a a chapter of history that really goes on until sort of the advent of the end of formalized white supremacy in immigration in the 1960s. Um, I mean, there was uh, so much uh, anti-black hysteria at this time as well. If you look to some of the headlines uh, in that era you you see you need to keep out the black menace, like there's this really extreme focus surrounding this invasion, the idea that if black people would cross the country, um, that they would bring crime with them, um, all these sort of menacing issues of, um, of black men as potential rapists, um, of black women as prostitutes. Like these are these are tropes that were fairly heavy circulated at this time. Um, at the same time that we saw really popular um, blackface theater was really popular in Canada at the same time. So tropes that we often associate with The United States are actually things that were extremely common um, in Canada, but then you just have this different uh, take on it, right? The Minister of Interior, William D. Scott, uh, said privately in a private correspondence, Africans, no matter what country they come from, should not be admitted to Canada, but then publicly uh, they used the term climatic unsuitability. So you just sort of have this long history of um, articulating racism in a very, in a very particular way uh, in Canada that has really masked a lot of really significant anti-black practice. At the same time, you would see, we were seeing um, white companies and landowners wouldn't sell or lease to black people in Hamilton and Winnipeg. Black communities were restricted into segregated housing, and even orphans were actually housed separately. They actually created a a separate orphanage, um, well, in many places, but particularly in Halifax, the, the home for colored children. And that was actually significantly funded so, so, so much less. Uh, than that of white children, that there is like malnutrition. Um, now it's coming out that there is all kinds of just horrific sexual abuse uh, and things like that. So, um, all this to say, really, that though the way that you know, like if you look at old uh, runaway, like people used to post runaway slave ads in the time of enslavement. The there is no shame around it then. People would post their name on the ad. Uh, you know, trying to catch their property. And at that time, black people who had freed themselves were seen as criminals for stealing themselves. Um, but it wasn't seen as like something unspeakable to really just rightly, um, just really overtly say that you think that black human beings are property. But then you can just see this massive shift in the discourse, but you don't actually significant, see a significant uh, shift in the treatment. Um, but instead, you really just see these different ways of rationalizing it, and particularly the use of of crime mm. is something that yes, it began with uh, you know the fugitive slave uh, advertisements that black people that ran away were criminals. But you start to really see the notion that black people were criminals, and that's why they shouldn't be allowed into country into the country um, throughout the 20th century is when it really took hold. How um, do I have? You can two more minutes. Two more minutes. Okay. Um, so. A few of the ways that that was done, I'll just quickly say, um, really the creation of drug laws in Canada were something that was very racialized, um, largely focused in many ways at Chinese populations, um, and alcohol, laws around alcohol were specifically targeting indigenous people, but um, also black men were a really big part of the visual focus of the original creation of drug laws. Uh, There's this book that actually was written by a white woman named Emily Murphy, it's called The Black Candle, and it ended up being really the basis of Canada's large federal, the criminalization of drugs. And almost all of the pictures in that book are just pictures of black men and black women. Um, there's a picture of a black man in bed with a white woman that says, she, I forget the exact wording, but something about she doesn't know or care even what she's doing if she does drugs. Like it really created this massive hysteria way before the war on drugs we think about now. And it uh, really explicitly targeted black people then. Um, and black women were targeted really, really specifically um, with, the idea that they're seen as inherently sexual, sexually deviant, um, and associated with, uh, with prostitution at this time. So, I mean, the police in Edmonton actually tried to push to get black immigration barred on the basis that uh, most black people that came to Canada, most of the women would end up prostitutes. And it was all over the headlines and things like that. And you actually see really significant levels of arrest, like, um, let's see. Yeah, in, early, in Vancouver in Calgary it's Toronto and Hamilton, black women were almost like sometimes three times, sometimes eight times more likely to be arrested for prostitution offenses. You can really see the policing of black women's bodies uh, and just presence in public space. I mean, it's really difficult to say from at least the research that I've been able to find the level of even actual necessary involvement um, that people may or may not have had with sex work at this time because black women were seen as criminally sexual kind of no matter what. So because they were seen as always inherently Criminal. it's hard to say actually whether, I don't know, like what uh, level of involvement there was, but you can definitely see extremely racially motivated targeting um, like way before kind of the jokes that we sometimes associate with contemporary black uh, policing. And one thing I really just quickly wanted to bring in to sort of bring us closer to the contemporary time is though um, certain kinds of like race, like really outrightly racist um, practices, we kind of think about the 1940s being the time when that ended, and we talked about like, the 1960s as a time where we brought in multiculturalism, where we started to have sort of this melting pot. But uh, in Canada, uh, the Caribbean domestic scheme uh, brought in women from Barbados, Jamaica, and Trinidad, and this really just reconstituted almost identically so many of the practices that existed um, under slavery at that time. For example, black Caribbean women were brought into Canada to be paid, sometimes people weren't even being paid in money but in clothing, uh, extreme vulnerability to sexual violence, extreme economic exploitation, the surveillance of really their everyday movements, uh, of their everyday lives, this idea that they were subservient um, and extreme punishment, punishment with deportation often uh, for going outside of any of that role, which is just really being subservient. Um, so uh, I just think that we need to, even though you can say that like, certain kinds of legal discrimination were ended at that time, if you have this legally classifiable group of people, that are still being treated in this way, but it's part of a migration scheme. I think there's actually, we just need to look at this as finding like a different way that um, anti-blackness was formalized, and that was really through changing immigration and border control policies. So.
0: Once again, that was Robin Maynard, uh, who is a black activist who spent years documenting racist and gender-based state violence. Um, she was speaking at the Center for Gender Advocacy's Thick Skin series on the panel Fearing the Black Body, which was a discussion on gender violence and misrepresentation and, of course, resistance.